0: Well, have you ever been in an environment that is so loud that you can't even hear the person next to you? Maybe it was a concert, naturally. That might be the first place that comes to mind for you. Perhaps it was a sports game. There was one with a lot of yelling going on between Tennessee and Kentucky yesterday. I was just saying that was good. Um, Maybe it was for you a place where uh, you were participating in uh, doing a good deed by chaperoning a school trip and you landed on a bus full of middle school students. Yeah, that's a place. Or maybe it's the nursery at church where it seems like every kid screams and cries at the exact same time. That sometimes happens in my house as well. But maybe you've been in a place that's so loud, so chaotic that you find yourself thinking, I can't even think in this moment. My mom used to say this, be quiet. I can't hear myself think. I'm going to stand up for kids, though, okay? because another place that you might have participated in where it's that chaotic, that kind of yelling is if you've ever been to a t-ball or a baseball game for young kids. You know the type of game, right? It's the one where they're younger, like six, seven, eight years old. And uh, not just the mom and dad come, but like grandparents come, both sides. Then you have aunts and uncles, they come. You've got third and fourth cousins. They're all coming to watch the kids play. The stands can't hold that many people, right? It's just filled out. There are so many adults who are there to watch these kids play and learn this game. Of baseball, inevitably, then what happens as you 're there at the game there 's this point where you have maybe a few people on base, and then the hit happens, and the kid 's on base they can 't remember do I go partway and wait because it is or do I run is this i 'm not real sure, and so they, they pause in that moment, and likewise, the fielder sometimes gets gets the ball and they think, do i get, do I throw it home the lead, or Is this the play Is it first? And then they can't remember. So what does everyone do in that moment? Everyone becomes the coach. Suddenly, there are dozens of coaches in the stands, all yelling to do something. Everyone has an opinion. And so this place that's packed just becomes chaos as there are 20, 30, 40 voices all saying Something different because half the people in the stands don't know either. So you've got people saying, Run home, throw it to first, throw it to third and they have no idea what to do. And in that moment don't you feel bad for those kids? They're sitting there and they're like, What do I do? I don't know about you. I think in those moments sometimes I just freeze and like, uh, I'm just gonna cry. Right now. And sometimes they do. I remember one time my son, Elijah, was one of those players that was caught in that moment between second and third base. Everyone's yelling at him what to do. And he doesn't know it. He gets out. I mean, so he goes back, head uh, hung in the dugout. I look at him and I just say, Elijah, you've got to listen to your coach. I don't know why I gave him that advice. Like, he's probably thinking, if I could have heard my coach, probably would have listened to them. But I wasn't real sure with all the other 20, 30, 40 people telling me what to do. Sometimes life feels like we're caught between second and third base with all these voices colliding in, telling us what to do. And we're not sure exactly which one to choose. I don't know if you felt that way. I know that I have. Sometimes in my life it feels like I'm stuck in between second and third base and there's so much noise There's so many different things to listen to that I'm not really sure which one I should hear. We've been talking over the last few weeks together about a series called How to Be a Perfect Christian. And if you're new with us or you're not real sure about uh, what's been going on in the series, let me tell you, we're using uh, satire, which is just a form of writing or uh, where it uses humor to expose a point in a sarcastic kind of way. So how to be a perfect Christian, really what we've been saying is you can't be one. In fact, the opposite is what we've been saying, is that it is our imperfections and that we realize that so that we can then cling to Jesus who is perfect. That's what we've been saying throughout this. That is not our perfection that matters, but Christ's perfection. So as we've been working through this series, we've been thinking about um, what that looks like for us and what it really uh, help, what it really means to be a Christian. So today as we wrap things up, we are going to spend some time uh, with the sermon title, which is also um, just a, a humorous title, but trust your own judgment. Something that we often think or feel, trust your own judgment. I want to illustrate for you the humor in this um, as... We play a game together. So if you do know already, our lead pastor's name is Scott Wakefield. And Scott um, is one of those people who is probably too smart for his own good. And so if you spend much time around Scott, then you know uh, and you'll understand this game that we're going to play. We're going to play Scrabble with Scott. So, yeah, I heard the moans. Because, you know, right, you've been right. Maybe you've been around him. And I, this is what I, I spend time with Scott and we're like riding in the car together and he starts to use a word that sounds like it was in a different language to me, perhaps French, Latin. I don't know. Maybe he made it up. So then there I go. I'm like, I get out my phone. I'm like, uh, uh, OK, that actually was a word. That's that was a word because um, I don't know what those words are. He just uses these big words and. Um, and so I've learned, though, after spending a lot of time with him, he doesn't make up words like they're actually real words. I just don't know what they are. So if you play Scrabble with Scott and you're thinking, uh, "This is what your letters look like," and you think, "What in the world? I, I got to make a word out of that," um, it doesn't really match up. You could just make up a word, right? You could make up a word. Actually, that's if you play Scrabble with Nathan. There he is. That's not a word. Yeah, he's, Yes, it is. How do you know? Well, what do you do is you pull out a dictionary and you determine, is that a word or is it not? Could you imagine playing the game of Scrabble without a dictionary? Can you imagine if you didn't have that standard to know what is or isn't correct? You'd have people make enough words like Cardi B does that actually aren't really words. You would have things where you're like, that's not a word. And they'd say, yes, it is. And who's to say? Because there is no standard um, if you make things up. I could imagine, like, what if that's how we lived our lives? where you just determined on your own what you wanted to say or make up a word? Language would begin to d- deteriorate quite rapidly. We might not even begin to understand what we were speaking and saying to one another. Think about how that would work with with measurements and we would or a measurement of time or distance, and we began to just make up whatever we wanted to, and you would say, "That's three feet," and I'd say, "No, it's thirty feet." Eh, whatever whatever you want. Just use your own judgment. It's a good thing that we have a standard. Sometimes maybe this makes sense for you the most with a speed limit, and you realize it's not really up to your judgment of how fast should I drive down this road. Well, Some of you are staring at each other right now and you're realizing that you have determined it's up to your own judgment about how fast that you drive down a road. But let's not blame one another yet um, on that. It's a good thing that there is a standard by which we operate. That standard or that measure becomes something that keeps us in line. Because if everyone determined by what they wanted or thought on their own or what they felt was right, then it would be a tough place to be. The Scripture that we're looking at today is not too far off from a time or a place where people felt like they were going to teach or believe what they felt like was right. And we might not be in Ephesus where Timothy is, but we can certainly relate to what it feels like to be a part of a culture in a world where we just um, would participate in people who think I want to just teach or believe whatever sounds best to me. So a little background of our passage today is, of course, that this letter, 2 Timothy, is written to Timothy and the author is Paul. And it's one of two letters that we have in our scripture here. If you flipped backwards, you would find 1 Timothy. And those are letters even that we know. Um, we know that Timothy was in Ephesus from that first letter, 1 Timothy in chapter 1 verse 3, it says uh, this at the beginning, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy was in Ephesus and we can presume that he was also there for this second letter. We know that Paul at the time, the author, was a mentor to Timothy, but at this time he was in prison. He was in prison and probably facing what would be the end of his life. Uh, not just as he's aging, but also as he's probably about to receive an execution. And so as Paul writes, he tells Timothy, I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to. Um, he's probably thinking that as my life is coming to a close, I want to pass on the torch to you. I want to pass the baton to you, the one that I've mentored. So he says, come and see quickly before winter. He says, I'm getting cold. I, I want my coat. Um, He says, come before winter, but also bring the book and the parchments with you. Having this mind that Paul is wanting to pass all of this on to Timothy and Timothy likewise is looking for the encouragement that he's receiving from Paul in these letters because he's feeling like, how am I supposed to do what I'm called to do this mission, Paul, that you've given to me through Christ? How am I supposed to do that in this place where I'm at? You see, Ephesus was a city about the size of Knoxville, and um, in this in this city that large, this church that Timothy was leading was not very large, maybe a couple hundred uh, or so people. And this was a large city that was dominated by worship of a god called Artemis. There was this temple built, huge place, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was built in this city. There's a theater in in uh, the city that's had a seating capacity of over 24,000 people. And in this place, there were Jews that said, I am not down with this Christianity thing, and so I'm going to persecute you. And the Romans who said, don't you dare start an uprising, I will persecute you. And people who were not interested in hearing this message of Christianity. And here's Timothy in that place, needing encouragement from Paul who helped begin this church church. There And so Paul and Timothy have this mutual desire uh, in the writing of these letters, Paul to pass on and Timothy, well, to receive like a passing of a baton of a mission that was given. And here you and I are generations later in this room, having received this baton or this torch that's been passed on to us, this same mission of sharing the good news, of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. We've received that perhaps 75 or 80 generations after Paul, recipients of that same mission. Here we are in Afton, ready and willing to do that, and so I think as we look in the scripture, we might find encouragement for where we are today. If you feel a little overwhelmed by the fact that you carry that same torch or baton, imagine how Timothy felt. He likewise did. I was thinking about how that might have felt for him. Perhaps a little undersized or under-resourced for what was at hand. Paul had written in the first letter in chapter 4, verse 12, Let no one despise you, Timothy, for your youth, but set the believers an example. You see, Timothy probably felt like he was too young, too inexperienced, undersized, So there's this photo I wanted to show you that was just a picture of what that might look like. It's a picture of David and Goliath, a story that happens in 1 Samuel 17. Maybe you know it. If you don't, let me tell you a quick uh, background of that story. There's two armies that had lined up against each other, the Israelites and the Philistines, and they were going to battle. This giant warrior from the Philistines named Goliath stepped out to begin to taunt all of the Israelites and say, come on. Bring your best warrior. And everyone was too scared because he was really a giant. And so then the only person who had the courage to step out was not a soldier, but a shepherd named David. He was quite too small to be a soldier. And so there he stood um, only with a slingshot. End of the story is he wins with a slingshot. Defeats the giant. And the story, if you want to read it in 1 Samuel 17, I wonder if Timothy felt a little bit undersized for the task at hand, and I wonder sometimes if you do. If you do, then maybe you, like Timothy, would hear these words today like a treasure. A treasure that comes from God through Paul. And it's one that I think will be meaningful to us if we'll hear. Let's begin in verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Basically, that whole list, those nine things have all been referenced already in these letters of first and second Timothy. This is like a collection of those things, to recall all of that back, to say, Timothy, you remember all of this. Let me collect it all again to remind you, to remind you of where we are. You've seen this in me, Timothy. Paul is saying, you've seen my life, be encouraged by my life, even where it was almost lost in Antioch. You see, people ganged up on Paul and they said, we don't like what you're sharing. And they took big rocks and stones and threw them at him and left him for dead. Timothy was quite young, but most scholars believe was part of the crowd when that happened and would have remembered very vividly an event such as that. And so in the midst of the challenges that Timothy is facing, Paul says, be encouraged by my life, by what you've been taught. And remember, verse 12, he continues, that indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 12 is not this um, declaration that everyone is going to be uh, receiving a martyr's death. It's not that persecution for all of us is inevitable in the sense that we will suffer martyrdom. But it is for us a recognition that if we would say what I hope we would all say, if we would say yes to to God's plan in a way that comes before our own and we would follow God with abandon and we would say, yes, Lord, wherever you take me. Yes, Lord, whatever you ask. Yes, Lord, wherever that leads. If we would begin there, if we would pursue a godly life, then what Paul is saying is that eventually we're going to meet resistance. There's not a place in this world where you could choose to live. There's not a city or a place in all history where you could pursue a godly life just like that, and not eventually encounter resistance. We would suffer resistance, and then as we endure that over time, as we endure that persecution over time, that is when we will discover that God has given us strength as He has for Paul. We start by saying, Lord, however, whenever, wherever, I'm all yours. And the hope is that is what Paul's teaching about those who said, no, nah, I'm not for that. They would deceive. Deception always loses in the end, Paul would say. Earlier, even in the chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, Paul's talking about people who are deceiving. And he says, listen, they're not going to get very far. Their folly was going to be plain to everybody. And then even later, after our passage, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, here's what he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Even when people hear truth, they may not choose to receive it or to accept it, but continue to be deceived. So Paul calls Timothy to something else. Verse 14, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But you, Timothy, live differently. You know the truth. You learned it from others who were trustworthy, who mentored you, who instructed you, and you've learned it in Scripture. The two sources of hope that Timothy has of strength are in the teachers and in Scripture And then right after this, verse 16, is dropped in like an anchor, right in the midst of this discourse. And it's not dropped in there as something random, but something to be emphasized. I think this is the treasure, this is the best part of what we're reading today. Verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Some translations, maybe the one you're reading today, use the word inspired. The one that I read says that it was breathed out by God or God breathed. I like the way, even though that's really clumsy to say God breathed, I like what that does is because when we use it that way, it points back to the source of Scripture in a way that really is what we need to hear and learn from this passage that the origin of Scripture is from God. The origin of Scripture is from God. Said elsewhere in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? Because if it came from men, we might doubt whether it was actually helpful, believable, or trustworthy. It matters because if it came from men, we might doubt that it was something that we could rely on. Especially when you feel like David against a Goliath. This doesn't downplay the fact that humans participated like Paul even in writing this letter. That was a part of the authorship of Scripture. But what it does, this is emphasizing that that Scripture comes from God who ultimately gave it through men who wrote it. We can have confidence in Scripture Because it doesn't come from our human judgment, from our human ideas, or from our feelings. Scripture comes from God. And that's why we say it's God's Word for us. That Scripture comes from God. And because it comes from God, it is therefore true. And because it is true, it is something that is beneficial to us. And so, when life feels chaotic, when things around us feel like there's so many places to get advice, so many opinions that are given. There's no shortage of that that we experience. How do we decipher it all? How do we understand what's best? The passage teaches us today that we rely upon those who have gone before us in faithfulness. And we rely upon God's Word. Listen, if you hear nothing else today, maybe you've zoned out, started drawing a picture zone back in, I want you to hear this. This is important. The point today is that when we use Scripture, that what we are doing is we are not looking at this as a place to turn to when I just want some advice. This is not an equal to us In the same way that we think, I'll listen to my friend, I'll open up Facebook, I'll search the internet, I'll perhaps read a self-help book. That is not what this is. We place ourselves under the authority of Scripture in a way that's different from everything else. God's Word is for us not an equal thing of advice for us, but something that we say, this shapes who I am. This determines Who I am, not in a way of receiving advice, but in a way that we have submitted to its authority because it comes ultimately from God. That's how we roll at First Christian Church. We submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. Go back to the baseball game. You're between second and third base. And you're hearing all kinds of noise. How do you know what to listen to? How do you know in that moment? Do you run to third? Do you go back to second? I think if it was me, I'd probably just crouch down and cry. Because I don't know what to do. If we're in that moment and we hear the advice from our culture and our world, the advice we're going to get from our culture overwhelmingly is, Tune out the noise and listen to your own heart. Decide what's best for you. Well, I considered that as the runner in between second and third. And I've been at those baseball games. And I know that if you're a runner in between second and third, inevitably, somebody is going to say this. Run home! It sounds really good to me. I think I will choose the path directly from second base to home. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Listen, if you have the ability to choose what's best for you, it might not actually get you a run. I just did a simple search on the Internet because this is overwhelming. This message to follow your heart and to choose what's best for you is a part of the culture we live in. I pulled a quote from a guy named Steve Job, and his quote says this, do not let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. Do not let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. That's, a, that's inspiring. Don't let other people's opinions deter you from what you know is best, he would say. Princess Diana says it this way. Only do what your heart tells you. And I'm not pulling these quotes to say, like, trash that. That's not what I'm saying. Those are inspiring. They're motivational. But what I am saying is it points out for us a message that we hear quite often, which is when things seem crazy, what do we do? We trust our own heart. You look into yourself. We find the answer. Use our own judgment. The title today, Trust Your Own Judgment, points to this tension that ultimately we have to determine what's best. The problem with that is I've done that before. The problem is I've done that. I've trusted my own heart and it didn't go very well. You see, I've followed my own heart and listened to the inner voice for sure. When I was at that buffet and my inner voice said, get another plate and fill it full. I listened to that inner voice that very clearly said, eat more of your mother's cookies. And it resulted in sickness. I have listened and followed my heart as it led me through relationships in my life that were absolute train wrecks. I have listened and followed the advice of my heart as I purchased things that cost more than the money I had. I don't know about you, but when I follow my heart, I don't really end up in a great spot. I'm more of a mess up than an expert. If I am left to follow my own heart, it's probably going to lead me astray. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus teaches this. Matthew 6:21 For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I read this article that talked about how our culture has flipped that around. Our culture has flipped that verse and that teaching from Jesus that where your heart is, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. So just follow your heart. There you'll find your treasure. Jesus teaches the opposite. Jesus says that if you really want, if you really want to know what is right, you choose what to value and then your heart will be there too. Because hearts hardly ever rarely will just drift their way into treasure. If you think about your greatest regret in life, the thing that keeps you up at night, very possibly started with you following your own heart. If you think about your biggest financial regret, it may have begun with you following your own heart. Our hearts are deceitful. And that's why Jesus doesn't teach us to follow our heart. But He says, place your treasure in what is most valuable and your heart will follow. You see, we are shaped by God's Word, not the other way around. If it were not for God's Word, I would have no clue what to do. I would be an utter mess. I contemplated this, fell to my knees this week, because I realized that if it were not for God's Word, I would be walking in utter darkness. I would have no sense, no reason. I would be a complete wreck. God's Word is for me the light that I need to see clearly to operate in a way that is right. God's Word is for me the very breath that I have to breathe, the very life that I know. His Word for me is what I need to see and direct my life. God's Word is what He has given me. And so I want to value this and treasure this with all I have so that my heart becomes shaped by it, not the other way around. I want my heart to be shaped by what God has to say for me. What if we did that? What if we allowed God's Word to shape who we are? What if we valued this so dearly and placed it as our treasure so dearly that it might shape our hearts? What if we decided to open this instead of opening Facebook and being shaped by that? You see, I have so much regret that I've let the words of Facebook and culture influence my heart sometimes more than this. Why do I try to live without God's Word? Why do I do this? Right in the very beginning of this book, this, this Bible teaches us that when there was no life at all, God brought it forth with His Word and breathed breath into the first man. We are alive because God's breath and His Word given to us. So all Scripture is breathed out by God. Would we breathe deeply? Breathe deeply of His Word so that we may be equipped, directed, and forever changed. O God, we submit ourselves fully to the power and authority of Your Word for us. Shape us and change us. Equip us and prepare us. We would find hope in nothing else but You and You alone. So God, today may we value and treasure Your Word more dearly and desperately than anything we ever have in our lives so that we would be fully equipped for every good work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.